Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Why should someone on the right be optimistic given the change in tone over the last two years? Well, I think because this is where the American people are. And at the end of the day, I think what the American people want is control over their own lives. They want to be able to raise their own families, not have big tech do it. And they don't want these companies to have this kind of power. They don't want this. They don't want to see uh, the, the monopoly status and the monopoly politics continue. And, and I think ultimately, w- what do elected officials, what do politicians respond to? Ultimately, they respond to their voters. And I think that's why you've seen Republicans' tone change on this. Marshall and I had a fantastic time down in Miami, and the rest of our crew had some well-deserved time off as well. So we are back with a very exciting and interesting new guest, Senator Josh Hawley. You may have heard of him. He's out with a new book, The Tyranny of Big Tech. Now, this is going to be a really interesting episode for Marshall and I, and we'll get some stuff out of the way because we knew some of the criticism is going to be coming in hot. So let's just lay it out on the table. Did Marshall and I agree with Senator Hawley on January 6th and what he did there? No. If you want to hear our thoughts on that, you can pretty much listen to literally every other episode in which we castigated it and said it was the wrong move. That being said, he is still the intellectual leader within the GOP on big tech. So if you want to know how these discussions are changing, shifting, and going forward, and what the person leading the Republican charge against big tech actually thinks, you should probably read his book. You should probably engage with his work. And instead of another interview where we ask him the same questions and he has the same canned answers, this is one where I actually think you're going to get a lot out of it. Yeah, the key thing is back in 2018, 2019, when Senator Hawley was elected, it was novel and crazy that a member of the GOP was criti- was critiquing big corporations and taking on tech. And there were always breathless articles in the Atlantic and the New York Times and Vox and all those places. Because once again, he really was a vanguard on that issue. Now, every other Republican and their cousin is talking about this issue. I guarantee you right now, Republican members, their staffs, think tank employees, whether they are pro or anti-big tech, they are reading this book. They are thinking about this. And frankly, we had a lot of people in our DMs say, hey, real talk, we wouldn't do this interview, but we'd love to hear it. We'd love to hear what you have to say, given that context. So we think that as hosts, it's our job to help you all understand the way the world works and how things are changing. And Senator Hawley, what he says on Amazon, what he says on Twitter, Facebook, everything down the line, it's critical to get this. Here's why this episode is so important. Ever since Sagar and I got engaged with this debate around big tech and its power and whether or not there's a bipartisan criticism of the industry, we've been deeply frustrated by the amount of lazy thinking that goes on. You hear people saying, oh, there's a bipartisan push against big tech. You're going to have a left-right alliance against Mark Zuckerberg and corporate power and all these things. If you are someone who's heard that in a bunch of very mainstream places, if you're someone who is sympathetic to that idea, listen to what Senator Hawley is saying and understand that the year isn't 2018 anymore. Understand when it comes to these debates over content moderation, understand when it comes to these debates over how big tech should handle these questions of speech, these questions of misinformation and disinformation. There's very little agreement between left and right on these questions. And that's your guide how you think about this. That is exactly right. So now that we've got that all out of the way, hope we don't get too many one-star bombs. If we do, that's okay. We've got plenty of you guys who have our back. So 
Okay, we know you guys want to get to the interview, so let's quickly get to the Q&A. What do we got today, Marshall? Today's question comes from Robert. Hi, Marshall and Sagar. Please find my five-star review below. My question is, I want to own the libs, but not those libs, the libertarians. I used to class myself as a libertarian without really much putting much thought into it, but gradually over time, with the help of this podcast, I've realized it's an idea and political ideology that doesn't really work, but I'm terrible at trying to break it down and explain it to my friends. Can you give me two to three simple arguments for why libertarianism is a bad idea? Thanks, Robert from Las Vegas. Hey, Robert, I think we're going to disappoint you because I don't actually want to dunk on people like your friend. I think he probably comes at it from a very good faith point of view. I think a lot of people misunderstand what I talk about when I'm talking about libertarians. And this is actually a bubble problem, which is that when I talk about it, I'm talking about the folks I know here in D.C. And D.C. libertarians are very distinct from what I call folk libertarians. Those are people who just don't live in Washington. Largely, they come to the ideology from not wanting the government in their lives. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually deep within the American character going all the way back to the Western expansion. What is wrong with that is exploiting those people's goodwill and the longtime feeling within the American character to really just running cover for corporate tax cuts and large corporations here in D.C. and end up institutionalizing power and lobbying on behalf of the billionaire class. And I would say that that is largely what the D.C. libertarian movement has turned itself into. Yes, there are some good actors. I would say Tyler Cowen, one of the few here in Washington who is actually doing that. But by and large, that's what it has become. So people need to understand that that's who I'm really critiquing whenever I talk about it. What about you, Marshall? I think the good way of thinking about this, and this goes back to our episode of Frank Stefano and Jennifer Harris from the Hilo Foundation back in December. Ask yourself this. If you're thinking about the problems in your life right now, if you're thinking about the issues that are facing the country right now, I don't think that the very 20th century libertarianism really speaks to basically anything there. Now, the claim isn't that the right or even the left have answers to those questions either, but I would just say very specifically libertarianism, especially given its inability to actually have a real serious constituency of people behind it, is just not an actual idea that could answer questions that people are facing. And the whole thing that we are trying to do on this show and the whole thing that I'm consistently searching for is I try to figure out my own ideology. The way I think about things is what is a framework? What is a way of thinking about the world that helps me understand it better? And aside from the debate over big cities not allowing enough housing supply to exist, so this is the Yimby Nimby thing, I don't know what libertarians particularly are adding to the policy debate that's really resonating with people. I know we're going to get lots of incoming frustration over that point. We welcome the hate mail. We welcome the mail. Just remember, no one-star reviews. But all that being said, it's time for us to jump into this highly anticipated episode. Thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. Let's dive in. Senator Josh Hawley, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you. 
Absolutely. It's good to see you again. Sir, we have limited time, so we want to make sure we get the best um, interview that we can for this book. And it's something that we really want to focus down into. I feel like most of the people who do politician book interviews never actually read the book and make it some news of the day thing. So this is something we want to try and do here. And first of all, the book is about the tyranny of big tech, which begs the question, what is the problem? So for the most basic listener out there who's maybe not even necessarily political, what is the problem with big tech from your perspective? The problem is that these are monopoly companies that have incredible amounts of control over our personal lives. They take our personal data without telling us. They use it and sometimes sell it without our consent. They try to censor what we see, what information we communicate, uh, and what news we consume, and of course, ultimately our speech. That's the problem. And these companies have gotten big and powerful with the help of government. They've achieved monopoly status. And now the left wants to use these monopolies to further their own speech control agenda, their cancel culture agenda. We've got to say no to all of this. We've got to break these companies up, get real competition back in the market. Competition and liberty go together, not monopoly. So I'm glad you said monopoly three times because we're getting to the definition part of this. What actually is a monopoly in this context? Because you said it yourself, these are companies. So you have Facebook, you have Google, they're doing different things. They have different contexts. Sometimes they fulfill the same function. So for example, Twitter will have stories and Instagram owned by Facebook will have stories. So define monopoly in this context. Well, here I think it means platforms that are so dominant that they have an incredible market share. They have a concentrated dominant market share in their respective markets. Take Google. Search, Google Search. Everybody's familiar with Google Search. We all probably use it. Google Search accounts for something like over 90% of all searches done in, I think it's the world. It's a huge, huge mm -hmm. number. Take Facebook, social media. Of the ad American adults who use social media, and that's like 76% of adults in America use social media, 99% of them use Facebook. That is market power. That is concentrated market power. And you, could, you know it's a monopoly when you see them be able to kill competitors. And you see them be able to take stuff from us as Americans without our consent, and we can't do anything about it. And we see both of those things. We see these companies buying up the competition. We see them killing competitors like Parler, for instance, which they basically eliminated back in January with the snap of their fingers. And you see them taking stuff from us, our data, our personal information, our privacy, and we can't do anything about it because there's no competition to go to to hold them accountable. So that's that's monopoly. These dominant platforms have become monopolies, and it's time we broke them up. And so from that perspective, I think an obvious question that any listener is going to ask and be like, well, why, why hasn't that happened? And you know, given your own legal background, you literally worked on this when you were attorney general for the state of Missouri. What, how has the right, or even America in general, approached the question of monopoly since the 1970s and antitrust issues? As in, how does the government or Congress, people like yourself, decide what a monopoly is, or at least have in the past, and then we'll get to how it's changing in the future? You know, I think both left and right have gotten too comfortable with monopoly power in recent decades. In the book, I tell the story, I go all the way back to Theodore Roosevelt, and to his days of trust busting. And I tell part of the story of how even in his day, uh, the politicians in both parties began to get more comfortable with monopoly power. And they decided that eh, maybe what we should do is just try to regulate it, just try to live with it. And I think that has helped get us to where we are today. We need to recover that tradition of trust busting and actually do something about it. So if you look at, for instance, how our courts treat monopoly, how they, how they answer that question, do you really have a monopoly? A lot of times now, they focus on whether consumer prices have gone up 
And that's a good question to ask. You know, has has a, a company made prices more expensive? But that's only part of the equation. You know, with these tech companies, a lot of the goods they offer are supposedly free. In Gmail, it's free. Facebook, it's mm -hmm. free. They say. But what are they doing? How are they making us pay for it? They're taking our data from us. They're controlling our speech. And we don't really have any control over that. That's what you call a monopoly rent. So I think we need to take a broader view. And this is why I propose legislation that would change the standard courts use to determine and enforce monopoly status and monopoly laws. I think the standard ought to be promoting competition. That's what we ought to be looking for. That's what we should be trying to do. So let's understand this to the context of the examples you gave. So your example, Google search, most people use Google search. Are you calling for Google search to be split off from Google? Like, How would that work? What would that look like for people? That's a great question. I think that what we need to do is taking Alphabet Google as the example. I think that Google should not be allowed to have dominant platforms across multiple industries. So you've got Google search. Of course, they also have Google Cloud and they also have Google Fiber. And they have any number of other Google-owned services. The Google, and maybe the biggest one, where they also have a near monopoly, maybe an outright monopoly, is digital advertising. Google owns what's called the ad stack, which is the whole advertising apparatus. They shouldn't be allowed to own all this stuff. I mean, that's the simple answer. You shouldn't be able to have monopoly power in multiple industries at once. So I think one of the clearest things we can do is to pass legislation that says you've got to break these different lines up. You can't have this mass consolidation, these conglomerate mergers, they're sometimes called. And so I would say that, that Google ought to have to sell off Google, Google file, uh, Fiber and Google Cloud. I think that Facebook should have to sell off Instagram and WhatsApp. The Amazon shouldn't be able to own Amazon Web Services and also own the dominant e-commerce platform. So make these companies split off the various different industries that they have gathered together and allow there to be some real competition. Senator, what differentiates tech from a normal multinational conglomerate? So like General Electric, for example. So like General Electric gets the light bulb patent, then all of a sudden in the mid-2000s, they become a financial services company, a light bulb company, also a washing machine company, also that. So is it the objection to a conglomeration of a business? Like what? why is technology in these firms that you're talking about specifically different, given that we've had semi-similar companies in America for almost 100 years now? Yeah, although we do tend to break up conglomerates when they get to a certain size. I mean, this is part of our tradition in this country. And I think that in the tech space, we need to be clear that, that the time has reached. We've reached a critical mass, a critical priority point where we need to intervene to break up these conglomerates. I think tech is unique in the sense that they control so much of our daily lives. I mean, you've got to mm -hmm. go back at least 100 years to find other monopolies that had this kind of power in the American economy. And even that, that would be the railroad monopolies or the U.S. steel standard oil. Even those don't compare to tech. Think about this. Tech controls what news we read. They control how the news is written. I mean, how it's formed, the headlines it's uh, it, it, takes, it uses, uh, the form of the article itself. They control how it's distributed. They control the speech that we employ. I mean, it's really, it is extraordinary, the reach of their power. And they increasingly control buying and selling online, advertisements online. They control all of that. That is an extraordinary and I think really exceptional, unprecedented amount of power. So I think it makes the big tech companies the most pressing monopoly problem, but not the only monopoly problem. And I propose legislation that would cut other mega corporations down to size. We've got a mm. concentration problem in the economy that goes across industries. Tech is just the leading example. 
So something we're trying to do here is give folks tools for thinking about this issue, because the whole point of the 1970s comment is a lot of people on the right, especially, don't have a strong framework for thinking about this. So it's now conventional wisdom across the aisle that it was a mistake to approve the Facebook acquisition of Instagram in 2013. But what makes that hard if we take ourselves back in time is at the time, Instagram was small, it had a strong valuation, but that doesn't really mean anything as long as they're not selling anything. So how should policymakers have thought of that acquisition back then? And how should that inform how they think of new acquisitions? So for example, when Twitter was talking about buying Clubhouse a few months back. Yeah, terrible idea, by the way. Twitter shouldn't be allowed to buy anything. I, I would also just say this on that point. I think that these these tech companies any company that is worth has a hundred billion or more in market cap shouldn't be allowed to merge or acquire anything else. Period. No matter the industry, and for the tech companies, I think these dominant firms we ought to give DOJ the power to say, "Look, you are a dominant firm based on your market power, and you don't get to acquire anything else, even if you don't meet the market cap requirement that I just mentioned." So we we need to we need to stop their endless gobbling up of competitors, startups, and and others. But I think that part of what we, to go back to your question about the 1970s, I think part of the reason, part of what we see here is that courts have asked this question about consumer welfare that I mentioned a little bit ago and about consumer prices. And I think it's, that's a hard framework a lot of times in the tech space because these, the consumer facing pieces of these businesses often are free. And so you say, well, would Facebook buying Instagram cause the product to cost more? I mean, not to the consumer, right? It's still free, except for they're extracting their monopoly rents in other ways. They're extracting it with data. They're extracting it with privacy. They're extracting it with control over speech. Those are hard to quantify from, from a, a price perspective, but they're no less important. And the property rights involved are in many ways no less tangible. So this is why I think we need to change the focus of, of, the, of our antitrust laws in terms of the standard that we use to evaluate them and not just ask about consumer welfare, but say promoting competition needs to be the framework that we use for antitrust. Mm -hmm. So this is great because I want to follow up on this. So one of the frameworks we care about is competition. Another framework we could care about to speak to the venture capitalists who are listening is what they would probably say to you is the framework isn't just competition. It's, for example, funding companies and getting exits. So for example, it's not it's not even as if Twitter is just acquiring competitors. They're also acquiring small nascent firms who could fill a function. So for example, they recently acquired Scroll, which is a media advertising company. They acquired Review, which is newsletters. Under your framework then, that is a problem as well too? Correct. Yeah, that's correct. I would say for these companies, for the dominant platforms, I don't think they should be able to acquire anything. I mean, I, my legislation says if it's if it's worth ten million or more. So mm. I mean, any 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 company of of any particular size, they should not be able to acquire. And I would say for any industry, if you've got a market cap of a hundred billion or more, no mergers and acquisitions. It's just a bar. I mean, we just there's a certain point at which you're too big, and acquiring more stuff and concentrating even more power in the hands of a few companies, it, I think it's dangerous. It's interesting, Senator, because it. it this is, you know, we were asking the clubhouse example and the Twitter example as well. How do you balance competition? I'm channeling, you know, what I, I think some of the more libertarian crit critics in us have messaged us as saying like, listen, you know, Twitter, there've been many examples of dynamic industries. AOL actually just this week, I think sold for 5 billion at one point, literally acquired all of Time Warner, you know, and that happened within the span of 20 years. So how does the legislation and just your general thinking balance the ability 
ability um, to maintain dynamism as a company because you can be big and fall. That's the story of some parts of the internet while also wanting to balance competition. Well, I think that competition leads to dynamism. I mean, that has mm-hmm. been, certainly for those of us who believe in the free market, that has been a traditional principle. And, and I think something that's been verified and ratified by economists. I mean, the more competition you have, the better it is, at least to productivity gains, at least to new investment, at least to innovation. I'm really concerned about the innovation slowdown in our economy across sectors. And I, I really do think that the concentration of market power in the tech space, but in other areas as well, has led and, and contributed to that innovation slowdown. Same thing with wages. You know, there's there's multiple studies done that show that that increased market power, market concentration is correlated with a declining share of GDP for labor. And that makes sense. If, if there's actually less competition, so to speak, for people's jobs, they've got fewer firms they can go to, then you have uh, increasing power by the firms and you see uh, wages uh, flatlining, particularly for those uh, who don't have a, a four-year college degree. So I think that competition is a pro-innovation, pro-productivity, pro-dynamism policy, and we need to be in favor of it. You know, take the Microsoft case from a couple of decades ago now, gosh, almost three decades ago, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, that case ultimately led to a, a, an avalanche, a wave of innovation in Silicon Valley uh, and in this same sector, in the technology sector, partly because it freed up uh, space there, freed up space for competition. I think we need to do something similar in the tech space. The worst thing that we could do is allow just a few dominant companies to basically freeze the technology space, to freeze out new startups, to freeze out new market entrants, all the while projecting their political power and, and trying to essentially run our government. See, that's the part where it, these two things become so fused and it becomes difficult from my perspective. And I'll just lay out what you laid out on Amazon talking about AWS. I completely agree with you. Basically, have a money printing machine that's able to subsidize, you know, e-commerce, which both of them together and you take a hundred, you know, multi-billion dollar corporation. The question from the political power is where it gets tricky. I'm curious from your perspective. I mean, one of the reasons where a lot of the conservative movement, it seemed, came to join you on Amazon was saying like, okay, we need to break up Amazon. But it's not entirely clear that a spun-off AWS also doesn't just take Parler off from AWS at the same time that Apple and other companies are doing. And I guess more what I'm pointing to is ideological capture of elite institutions pretty much all across America. So monopoly power and addressing it doesn't seem to be the catch-all solution, at least for some conservatives who are approaching it that way. What's your perspective or your response to them? Oh, I, w- I would say it's it's not a catch-all. It's not the end-all of, uh, of, of uh, addressing ideological capture. It's a great word for it, it but, but mm-hmm. it is a big part of it. And I think that, uh, listen, to have monopoly power, anytime monopolies gather this kind of power, anytime you see corporations become monopolies, I should say, they always want to project their power politically. We've seen that throughout our history. We saw it a century ago. You know, we had the railroads. What do they try to do? Buy entire state legislatures. And they really had quite a bit of success with that. They tried to buy the United States Congress, and it led to the biggest bribery scandal in American history in the Congress. And and so we've seen this movie before, and that's why it's it's not a total solution. It's It's not the perfect solution, but it is it is a major step forward to say we're not going to allow these companies to control the economy, to squelch competition, and to exert their power politically. And this is why a trust-busting, uh, anti-monopoly uh, policy, I think, is so, so important. One other point there, Sagar, just about these monopolies in, in different industries. It is true you could spin off AWS 
And AWS could still be a monopoly in that particular sector. And, you know, our antitrust law should have something to say about that, too. Just because you limit the companies to one sector doesn't mean that, okay, now it's okay to be a monopoly, right? Mm -hmm. But I think we can start with allowing these huge companies to build conglomerates across multiple in industries. Surely we don't want that. Surely we want to stop that. And then we'll talk about the monopoly power in each industry. Something I wonder about is how much is how much of this conversation is frozen in the years 2015 through 2017 in the sense that obviously the three of us are no fans of TikTok, but like the one <laughs> side part of the TikTok conversation is that Facebook was actually scared of TikTok because you actually have an outside player who outcompeted them when it came to actually creating a platform that young people actually wanted to use. So you have TikTok, you have the rise of Clubhouse, you have venture capitalists actually putting money into the social media sector newly probably during the pandemic going on that way. So how do you just think about how the narrative is shifting there? Do you think it's a real narrative or is this a whole we shouldn't wait and see in five years dynamic? Well, I think the narrative of monopoly, I and mean, I think the facts are the facts. And if you look at the, again, the degree of market power and market concentration of these industries, I think it's real. Uh, I think that the, the the facts there are just undeniable. Now, Google and Facebook can, can try to make the argument that, oh, well, our power is actually good. I mean, this is Facebook's latest pivot. Their China pivot, which is oh, you need us to be a, you need us to be a, a champion, an American champion. Basically, embrace us as a monopoly, and we'll compete with China. Now, my answer to that is, is that we don't, we don't, we don't give you monopoly status based on what you think you will do for a foreign uh, nation or what you can do for us. That, that's not how it works in the United States. We like competition, so you know, go compete, go go beat those Chinese companies, but do it competing with them, not because you've got monopoly status and American law and American. Uh, antitrust enforcers are looking the other way. So I think the bottom line is, I don't think we should be trying to pick winners and losers in terms of, oh, I think this company you know, ought, to be, ought to do this. I think the outcome ought to be that. We should just be for competition. Let's keep competition robust. Let's encourage more innovation. Let's let the market change. There's, we want new entrants. We want new competitors. We want it to shift. We, I don't want to be having this conversation with you about these same companies in three or four years. We want to be talking about a whole different set of companies. And I think that's what we should get to. Something a more meta question I have, Senator, is how did you come to the interest on monopoly and antitrust? You, I, you know, have been interested in this for a long time, actually at the exact same time that much of the conservative movement was turning against Theodore Roosevelt, I would say in the mid 2010s and more, you were somebody who was actually advocating for embracing his legacy. So it's not like this is some newly discovered thing. Where does that come from um, in your own intellectual background? Well, I, th I think it, I've, I've been interested in Theodore Roosevelt for a long time, and, and uh, I think it really goes back to, to looking at someone who uh, stands outside our current economic and ideological debates just because he predates them for so long. I mean, Roosevelt, he's hard to map on to our conservative liberal diagram. He doesn't really fit well on that. And I just want to be clear, as I say in this book, and I wrote another book about Theodore Roosevelt, there's a lot to dislike about Theodore Roosevelt's mm -hmm. policies. And we can learn a lot about what not to do. He ended up as, as a statist, really. He ended up basically saying that, well, maybe we can't actually uh, break up these monopolies and we should just regulate them, turn them into public utilities. I talk about that in this book. That was a mistake. And that's, I think, part of the mistake that's helped get us to where we are today. A lot of the, a lot of the right really came to, I think, more or less agree with the later Roosevelt and say, you know, maybe maybe these monopolies are just natural and maybe we should just live with them. I, that, I think, turns out to be a big mistake. But I think Roosevelt has a lot to teach us about uh, approaching these questions from a different angle and recovering an older American tradition that associates liberty 
with competition, liberty with the power of individual citizens to have a share and a say in their government, and sees monopoly in liberty as very opposed. And that, that tradition's kind of faded from view, but Roosevelt is a link to that older tradition, and that's one of my big interests in him. Hmm. I want to talk more about the historical connection you're making between Mark Zuckerberg and Andrew Carnegie or Cornelius Vanderbilt, because say what you want about Mark Zuckerberg. He did actually really start Facebook in a dorm room. He did actually, (laughs) because this, because this isn't a question of, you know, buying, there was no, you know, buying the railroad or getting intersected into the government back during the early 2000s. You did beat Friendster. You did beat MySpace, despite being supported by Rupert Murdoch, all those things. Where's the connection there? Because that's definitely of everything you said. I'm thinking of like a tech person. That's probably the thing that they would find the most objective on a personal level? Well, listen, I, I think some of the folks you just threw out, Cornelius Vanderbilt was one of them. A, a lot of these railroad barons, they, they built their railroads too. Not all of them. You know, I mean, J.P. Morgan, for instance, didn't really build anything. Mm-hmm. He, he, was the, he was the money, right? And he came in and ended up controlling a lot of them. But a lot of the early barons, they built the railroads from the bottom up. That's fine. I mean, look, we're for innovation. The problem is not when you build something that's successful. The problem is then when you try and muscle out all competition and capture all the gains for yourself and become a monopoly. That's the problem. So I would say to, to Zuckerberg and his story of, of, of building Facebook, that's all great. I think what's interesting is you can look at Facebook before 2006 or so when it was still competing with MySpace. Facebook was a very different company back then. Among other things, it was a very pro-privacy company. What happens though, as soon as they, they succeed in muscling aside MySpace and they have no other real competitors, they start extracting monopoly rents. They start going out and collecting consumers' data, just what they said they wouldn't do. They start tracking people all over. They introduce the news feed, algorithmic amplification, behavioral ads, all this stuff. And it's a sign that they've grown really powerful and that there's no valid competitor. And then they start engaging in, in anti-competitive conduct. I think buying up Instagram. You know, we, Zuckerberg, we have his emails where he talks about Instagram as a potential competitor. Shouldn't we just buy them? Now, that was a moment of candor. I write about it in the book. That ought to concern us, you know? So innovation, we're all for it. Building companies, we're all for it. Monopoly power, using that monopoly power to stifle competition or to exert political pressure, we're not for that. Something I'm curious about on a personal level. So you were um, at Stanford as an undergraduate during the, during really a, like the peak of the dot-com bubble in the 2000s, but then just that emergent period where you did see Google Apple come back with Steve Jobs. Obviously, you were in the same age cohort as a lot of these founder people. How can you just reflect around that moment and how you felt as an undergraduate and just what your thoughts on the space? Because the thing that's most interesting from people who cover the right, obviously, is how the rights for we approach this differently. Five years ago, you had members saying the Republican Party is the party of Uber and innovation and Whole Foods and everything. So it's really shifted. So 15 years ago, where were you just thinking about these questions? Well, I went to I went to college, as you point out, in a, in a time of great optimism about tech, and great optimism about the ability of, of disruptive companies. You know, that was much the buzz phrase back then. You know, for for tech disruption and disruptive companies to change technology and to really empower normal people, everyday citizens, to give them more control over their lives, over their jobs, over their politics. And I think my experience has been we have not seen those promises borne out. In fact, what we've seen is that the, the companies, we had, we had a series of companies that became dominant, a handful, that became dominant monopolies, the ones that we're talking about here, Google and Apple and Facebook and Twitter. 
And then they, they amassed power rather than dispersing power. And so to me, it's a story of promise that ultimately was not realized or abandoned, a promise of, 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 a, of a more innovative future, promise of, again, empowering um, everyday citizens. And it didn't really happen. I think it hasn't panned out. And I look back to that period where I was in college, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the, the uh, dreams and, and hopes that uh, were talked about there didn't materialize. What did happen is these companies got really big, they got really rich, and they got really, really powerful. But I think that's turned out to be harmful to many, many ordinary Americans, to normal working folks. And we've got to redress that power balance. One interesting question, Senator, uh, whenever I talk to Andrew Yang, this is something he said, and it's kind of stuck with me ever since, which is that what if it's possible that the internet just naturally selects for monopolies? As in, you know, in the previous times when we discussed monopoly problems in the United States, regional railroads, as in the baby bells, that's actually a great example, having, you know, regional telephone services, et cetera, actually makes sense when you're talking about a geographical service. But does anybody want to use the third best search engine or the fourth best social network? Because the whole point of network effects within a lot of these businesses is inherent to their intrinsic value in the first place. Everybody's on something, therefore, that makes it valuable. And when less people, I mean, you could see Clubhouse right now within a story of two months has gone from a Cinderella story to something of you know declining value. So how do you think about the internet naturally within the story of American competition? Because there, there is something there. I'm just not quite sure how to wrap my head around it. Yeah, and I'm not sure that we're in a position yet to say, and I would just say this, I think that we always want to err on the side of competition. We always want to err on the side of, of new market entrants, of new innovation. I think we should be pretty slow to say, well, this is basically a public utility, and now we've got to treat it as a public utility and regulate it like a public utility. I mean, sometimes uh, there, there turns out to be no real option there. But I think we should always err on the side of, actually, let's promote competition. Let's promote new market entry. Let's promote new innovation. So I would be pretty slow, especially with technologies like these, to say, that, oh, yeah, you know, it turns out you just you have to be huge. You have to be a monopoly in order to succeed. Certainly, if, you're, if your view is, if your business model is built around behavioral ads, is built around algorithmic amplification, as these platforms' business model increasingly is, then yeah, of course they want to be huge because they need all the data they can get, right? They need massive amounts of data. So they need to be gigantic. They need to compete on a massive global scale and they don't want competitors naturally. But this is another reason, Tiger, why I, I think we ought to be careful and cautious about saying that, oh yeah, that's a natural monopoly. Usually the folks who advocate for that the loudest are the monopolists, right? They always mm -hmm. say that. The monopolists always say, oh, well, hey, this is how it has to be, you know? So just let us, let us have this space and maybe we'll work out some kind of regulatory deal, which is basically what these companies are saying now. They're saying like, yeah, just just you know, regulate us a little bit, let us write the regulation, and uh, leave us alone. I, I think that what I would prefer to say is, hey, let's introduce some more competition, let's break up your monopoly status, and uh, then let's see what the market does. Something that's immediately coming to mind here is a deep frustration I have with this debate, which is people will usually frame the tech clash, the concern of big tech is a bipartisan issue. But when you actually look into, and you said a lot of bipartisan things here, but I think when you go into the deeper critiques that both parties are making, um, there's a really large disagreement. So a key thing in your book is you make the argument that this monopoly power isn't just a conversation around competition and money and market dominance. It's actually about the status of democracy. Um, and something that people on the left will say is they'll make that same argument, but in the opposite direction. So they'll say, <laughs> we agree, Senator Hawley, Facebook 
book is a threat to democracy because they platform all sorts of bad people. They allow QAnon to spread, all sorts of different references. What do you say to people who are swayed by that argument? Well, I would just say that the danger with getting cozy with monopoly power is that you can't have it both ways. I mean, you can't on the one hand say, yeah, these companies are monopolies and they're too powerful and we ought to decrease their influence in politics, their influence over the economy, but we do want them to censor more. And that's basically mm-hmm. what's been the Democrat position. We, we want them to censor more. And actually, we, we kind of like their power over speech. And in fact, we wish they'd use it a little more efficiently, is what the left is increasingly saying. I see my colleagues in, on the left in the Senate. It's been interesting over the last two years. I, I just, I've noticed a shift in their tone away from talk about how dangerous the concentrated power is and talking more and more about how the companies need to censor more. You know, they, they use the phrases that you use in terms of, well, they need to be responsible with their curating. They need to, they need to not allow uh, extremist voices. Uh, to me, this does get at a fundamental disagreement. I don't want there to be a big government, big business alliance. I'm against that. I don't want the government to be using companies as a cat's paw to carry out speech suppression that the, the government couldn't do because of the First Amendment. And this is another reason why I think the best policy here is to break up companies that have gotten this big, is to disperse that power and introduce more competition. And I, I do think that's increasingly a pretty fundamental disagreement because the left would like to maintain the power over speech. They would like to maintain that kind of control. And my, my answer to them is, is you can't have it both ways. You know, If you're going to let them have their monopoly power, you've got to then live with all of the other consequences of that, the economic consequences, the data uh, consequences in terms of taking data, the loss of privacy, all of that goes with their their monopoly status. Hmm. So the follow-up there is, what does the evolution in Democrats' rhetoric over the past two years mean for this broad project that you've engaged with? Because just what's been interesting as someone who's followed these debates a lot of the pieces on you in 2018, 2019 were, wow, like the left and the right and everyone's coming together and this is so counterintuitive and a whoa, he doesn't like the Koch brothers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as things have shifted in a more partisan tone, as, as tech has become much more like, I think, Hollywood in the eyes of the right, it seems that this has just come into a culture war stalemate position. So to call back your earlier comment where you don't want us to be having the same conversation in three years, it seems like any issue that becomes a culture war issue basically goes into that direction unless the left just outright wins like the gay marriage debate. So why should someone on the right be optimistic given the change in tone over the last two years? Well, I think because this is where the American people are. And at the end of the day, I think what the American people want is control over their own lives. They want to be able to raise their own families, not have big tech do it. And they don't want these companies to have this kind of power. They don't want this. They don't want to see uh, the, the monopoly status and the monopoly politics continue. And, and I think ultimately, what, what do elected officials, what do politicians respond to? Ultimately, they respond to their voters. And I think that's why you've seen Republicans' tone change on this in the last two years. It's changed a lot since I've been in the Senate. And that hasn't been very long. That's only been two years. Mm-hmm. Why have Republicans changed so much? Because their voters are saying more and more clearly, we don't like these companies. We don't like being tracked. We don't like being censored. We don't like their power. We basically don't like anything that they do in the way that they do it. And you need to hold them accountable. So I think that that is among voters. I think that's still a bipartisan position. And I think there's also a strain on the Democrat Party and the left. There is a a strain of uh, anti-monopoly, anti-statist tradition there 
that uh, for them runs all the way back to the 19th century, all the way back to Andrew Jackson, that, that's a powerful strain in democratic politics. And I think that could be recovered. Right now, nobody's really speaking for it uh, among elected officials. You don't hear that strain being emphasized much. But, you know, Franklin Roosevelt played on that strain in the 1930s. He talked about, he, he for a period, had an antitrust policy. He didn't end up doing much with it. But for a period, he pursued antitrust. He talked about uh, the power of, of empowering uh, the common man and woman, empowering uh, the, the everyday workaday citizen and about the need to cut the trust down to size. That's there still in the democratic tradition. I think that that can be brought out. And I think there's, there's real opportunity for cross-partisan work on this. But hey, it's going to take a lot of effort and uh, it's going to take shifting the, the debate. And that's why I hope this book, one of the reasons I go all the way back to the Gilded Age is I'm trying to, to challenge the paradigm of both right and left, in a sense, right now. And I'm trying to break out of this stalemate by saying, let's, let's think a little differently here about what it looks like to give people control over their lives. And maybe that's something that we could agree on together. You know, I've watched this debate with great interest, Senator, like you said, you know, ever since you got into Congress. And, and I remember when you first got there, just how out, contra it was to generally how the caucus thought. And I will say, rhetorically, there has been a shift. But that doesn't necessarily or has translated to policy. And something that I've seen, especially in the wake of the last couple of months, is we've seen a lot of senators, Republican senators, talk about we need to confront big business or we need to think about corporations differently. And yet on a policy level, and I'm not saying this is you in this necessarily, but more, they're not willing to do anything about it or at the very least rein in corporate power. And I've also seen a general critique, which I think is fair, which is that has the right been cozy with corporate power for too long and enabled, you know, this behemoth and in many ways written the rules which are allowing many of the things that they're complaining about. Citizens United would be one example. The corporate tax rate is another NAFTA and free trade. And so I'm curious for your perspective whether any of this rhetoric is going to translate into actual policy as we go forward. Oh, I think it can. I think it can. Uh, the the question is going to be, uh, will folks show some leadership and put forward substantive policies? And this is why people sometimes ask me, they say, well, listen, you're not in the majority right now. Why are you rolling out new antitrust proposals? Why are you rolling out new proposals on tech? Why, why are you continuing to do all this? You know that, that they're probably not going to get voted on anytime soon, at least not in their current form. You don't have a majority and, and you don't have the White House. And my answer to that is, is really your question, Sagar. It's because we need to push forward the ideas and the possibilities here. We need to show that, that look, there's different ways to think about this, that you can be absolutely pro-market, pro-competition, but anti-monopoly. You, know, you can be for uh, the workings of, of capitalism, but be against woke big business and against the idea of concentration of power by business across these different industries. And to be honest with you, one of the reasons I wrote this book and, and went all the way back again to the Gilded Age was to try to show that, you know, again, both right and left kind of got comfortable with monopoly power in the early 20th century and up through today. And I think we need to shake both right and left out of their complacency about this and say we've got a real problem here. Yeah, well, we, a, we know you have to, oh, we know you have to yeah, jump, that, sir. That, yeah, so that's, a, that's actually a good setup for our last quick question here, which is sure. to you directly tied wokeness and bigness together in a way that I think is really interesting because it raises, I think, a problem for the right. 
I don't know if you followed what happened with Basecamp um, over the last week or so, but that was a a small tech company that blew up effectively um, over debates around race and white supremacy and all those sort of questions. So this isn't just something that's happening at big Amazon. This is happening at startups or smaller, small businesses. So I'm wondering how much of these concerns are ones that even if you got... So for example, there's a part of this audience that only cares about censorship questions and only cares about the ideological angle of this. So I'm speaking really to that audience right now. How much are their concerns not going to or going to be alleviated by breaking things up? So what I mean by that is if you were to survey most startups coming out of Silicon Valley, so the smallest, most nascent ones, no acquisitions of big tech, whatever, they are still going to be hostile to a lot of conservative thought. So what do you say to people on the right that have just concerns about the fact that they are not positioned within these companies, no matter how big or how small they are? I would say this, that when you have, let's just take the, the approximate number of, of people in the last election who voted for the former president, you have 74, 75 million people who voted for him and who uh, align, one can assume, therefore, with that point of view, that's a big market. And I think when you look at market power and you say, well, well why are there not companies that are responding or, or catering to that market? Uh, why, why does Major League Baseball, for instance, Senator Lee, my colleague Senator Lee, raised this question recently. He said, why, why does Major League Baseball feel like they can take a position that is directly contrary and offensive to so many people who are their consumers? And Mike's answer, Mike Lee's answer to that was, it must be because they're a monopoly. I think that's correct. I think for many of these companies, they don't feel a need to go back to the big tech companies. They don't feel a need to directly compete for folks who have very different sensibilities than they do on these political issues, social issues, because they have monopoly status. They don't have any real competition. So to answer your question, will breaking up concentrated power, will that, will that bring uh, uh, all sorts of, of new conservative alternatives uh, into the marketplace? I don't know the answer to that. You know, I, we can't control that. Uh, but I do think that concentrated power is dangerous always in, on its own terms, always. And we're, we're seeing it vividly now and conservatives are awakening to it because the, the, these mega corporations have allied themselves with left-wing woke uh, social policies and economic policies. But concentrated power is dangerous no matter what they're using it for. The, just the idea that you would have a small group of people exerting outsized influence over government, over society, big, big problem. So I, I think that we, we have to address it. We've got to be able to open up the market for more competition and hope that that would give half of the country uh, opportunity to find new competitors. But um, there's in the market, there's no guaranteed outcome. Uh, who knows? Uh, who knows what would happen? But what would certainly be good is breaking up this concentrated power can only be good for democracy. It can only be good for liberty. And I think that's what we need to be keyed on. Well, we know we have to get you out of here, sir. We really appreciate your time. And we thank you for joining us again. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Absolutely. Thanks, Senator. Thanks for listening to the episode, guys. Really appreciate it. Go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you feel amenable, really helps other people find the show. It's also a way for you to ask us a question in your five-star. As always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast, and we are going to see you guys on Thursday. Thursday.